Hey, Tom, nice to see you. How are you? Morning, Harry. I'm glad. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for connecting with me. Um, I know we were just chatting before we got started that we haven't had a chance to connect too much yet. So I'm looking yeah. forward to learning a bit more about yourself. So um, remind me, like, where are you based these days? Where are you from? I'm originally from Ohio and um, lived in Austin, Houston, Phoenix, Little Beach, then came back to Ohio. So that's where I am now. Cool. Where in Ohio are you right now? A place right outside Columbus, a suburb called Powell. Awesome. Awesome. And um, that sounds kind of interesting. So you spent some time in Texas in your life? I did. Um, I started uh, writing. I've been writing all my life. And um, I decided I wanted to write a book about uh, a novel about the West, about a certain incident that happened. So uh, at the time, I decided I might as well go out to the West and see what it's really like, get some good experience. So I moved to Austin, spent about two years there, then moved to Houston, spent another like two or three years there, and then to Phoenix. And uh, I loved Phoenix the best. It was hot and beautiful place. Yeah. What did you like about Phoenix? I just, I, I didn't mind the weather. It's hot as lazy, but uh, it's just beautiful. Well, they've got sunsets that are unparalleled. Uh, and I was reading the reason they look so brilliant is because it's the, uh, there's no uh, particles in the air. It's all kind of pure, opposed to maybe here or elsewhere. But it was, you know, this beautiful and our, our place was surrounded by hills and mountains. But just great. Traffic was a bear, but it is everywhere. Yeah. The, um, I imagine there's good stargazing there. Pardon me? I imagine there's good stargazing there. Oh, yeah. A lot of stargazing. Yeah. It's just clear skies at night. Yeah. And. The beautiful palette of colors, especially if you're a photography or art, that's the place to be, in my opinion. Did you do any like hiking or outdoor activities like that when you were there? Not too. I did a lot of biking. I used to bike quite a bit, and uh, I did that. I didn't do any hiking. I've got uh, new knees twice, so Ooh. I, I gotta be careful with them. You know? <laughs> for sure, yeah, for sure. I um last summer I went out west myself um didn't quite make it to phoenix but went to uh nevada a little bit went to um the grand canyon and a couple of national parks and uh uh it is really beautiful out there it's hot but it's dry you know it's different it's not as humid as the south where i'm from um yeah but i loved it i loved it i did too i didn't houston was just the opposite it was very humid and unbearable at times but uh it was all right. Do you feel like you got some good learnings and perspective on your book from being in those different cities? Yeah, I did. I, uh, it was just, uh, it, it was nothing like being up close and personal in the writing and the, and the West for so many characters. Part of that character is the empire, the, the land. I mean, if that's part of the story all the time. So those did good experience. So. I'm curious, why did you decide to write a book about the West? Do you have a family connection well, or? I was writing, I've been writing all my life. I was uh, in the news business about 13 years and spent about uh, 
eight or nine with the Associated Press as a correspondent. Uh, and one day I was in a bookstore where I lived and found this little pamphlet that Ohio firsts. And I ran across a page that said the first train robbery in the United States was in Ohio right after the Civil War. But though I never heard that before. But I did some research and sure enough, they robbed a train in a place called North Bend, which is outside Cincinnati. And uh, they got $90,000 in treasury bills and got away clean. Nobody knew who they were anything. They got away in skiffs across the Ohio River and never heard again, never heard from them again. But that's, that's a wide open possibility for a story because you know, nobody was caught. So I took that idea and I remember I had moved it up to the son of my book, the first chapter, and it didn't quite work. So it ended up being about what the fifth chapter. And it's really integral to what happened. Um, in fact, there's three real life incidents that occurred that I put in that book. So, but coming across that first story motivated you to write the whole book or were you already writing the book when you found it? No, that was, that was motivation for the entire book, actually. And it came, it, it turned out to be a, a story about a, a burned out Union Army spy who got caught in the crosshairs of a evil major in the uh, U.S. Army. And uh, he's been blackmailed and, and chased halfway across the country. So the story really starts in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Missouri, and Wyoming. But it was all the way across the country. Uh, that was fun to write. Was, yeah. What had you been thinking about writing a novel for a long time and just were looking for the right story? Or was it just something about that story that caught you and you felt like you wanted to share it further? I've always wanted to write a novel and I never... And I really couldn't put anything together in my head as far as I just didn't want to write the traditional Westerns. This is more of a historical adventure, those three. Uh, so it was really that, that little story in that magazine or that little thing, that wine, first train or whatever, which really kind of triggering everything. It was amazing how little things just kind of take some value. And so that was really the real reason. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so funny how like you can take a one little story and then use that as a seed to kind of add some fiction or some hypothetical elements to, to, and they really expand it out. It sounds like that's what you did. Yeah. You add its characters and you end up creating a town, whatever. I mean, you do a little, and everything today, I did a lot of research. You use so much research, but you don't put much of it in the book. But from the standpoint of research, I mean, how fast does a horse travel from well, you know, Colorado to Missouri or whatever? I mean, you have to base it in, in fact, because the readers today, opposed to maybe decades ago, are really knowledgeable about things. One can quickly find them if it's true. So it's always in the back of my mind anymore, even though it's yep. fiction. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. Um, how does writing fiction differ from writing, you know, in a journalist setting? Well, I think from the standpoint of the difference, I mean, I, I can't say none of it's true because the book I wrote was, not why I wrote it was based on back part of it. I mean, 80% of it was fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the news business, uh, 
what I found was I used to run across uh, a cast of fascinating characters when I was out coupling anything. And, and you kind of dry, I used to kind of draw on those people that I met and they stayed with, some stayed with me, whether they, I covered a lot of politics, so a lot of politics stayed with uh, okay. other buildings. And I remember going into a fast food restaurant here and I saw some guy in a old sport coat with a big tie and he had a stack of magazines and books and I got the cup of coffee and sat down and I looked over and I was sitting next to him and I said, no, excuse me, I said, you mind if I join you? He says, no. I went over there and I said, uh, I asked him what his name was, old brother, what are you doing here? And he says, I come to this place every morning for the last 10 years and his wife had died and he kind of, they took him on this kind of the second home they used to wait on and they used to reserve this uh, booth for him and he had all these books and he used to read a lot and he I guess they owned a restaurant and he told, well, they gave me the menu for the restaurant, which was like 30 or 40 years before. So, I mean, it's just a fascinating character. So I thought, well, I'm going to write about him. So I, uh, and that's when I was at the AP. So I did a story on him and he had a lot of play, <laughs> but it was fun. But characters like that, I think, you know, stay with you and you can kind of magnify them the story. It's parts and bones, you know. That's, that's, that's really cool. Characters everywhere. Do you, when you were a journalist, was it mostly being able to find your own topics like that and writing kind of creative pieces like that? Or were you covering certain beats or certain, uh, you know, given certain stories that you had to write about as well? When I met him, you and When you were a journalist? Yeah, I could. Did you have certain, certain beats that you had to cover or stories that were given to you? Or did you have a lot of uh, well, autonomy? Yeah, when I, I started out in radio and moved to TV, and there were assignments. When I moved to the AP, uh, there were also assignments there, but uh, you can take on and do some and creative. Or I used to cover the State House, which was right across the street, incidentally. Um, and then I covered some national politics as far as campaigns, like that. Um, and then I did a lot of business stories too. So I used to interview other business CEOs and you know, of very successful companies that happen to be based around here. And so that was, I covered a little bit of everything. If I saw something that I qualified for a new story, I would. So, and there, it was, it just, it was a fun job. So, Sounds fun. Well, yeah, were, were there any especially interesting interviews or? Uh, political political campaigns that you got to follow. Yeah, I I remember when I was working, I was trying to think back. And when I was running for president, I met Reagan, uh, Jimmy Carter, and he was running. And then I remember they sent me to a place called Mingo Junction, which is about an hour and a half or two out of Columbus, uh -huh. and uh, just close up town. Or a vice president who was talking to Amanda. He's giving a speech at a uh, union headquarters, I think. Place is packed. And he talked for like an hour. And they gave him a key to this. And then he was going from there and flying to Youngstown. So I thought, well, I'll cover that too. So I left my car there. He invited me on the plane. So I got on the plane with him and flew to Youngstown. But I don't know. 
38 reporters probably. We got there and I covered the speech. I had called in the first speech in Farson's story. And when I got to Youngstown, I listened to a speech and I called uh, the office in Columbus and they said, okay, we're ready to take dictation. And I said, uh, ditto. They said, what? I said, ditto. I said, it was the same exact speech, words to word. And they gave them a key to the city there too. So it was, they just cracked up. I said, just yeah, you use what I wrote before. You'll be fine. <laughs> have a lot of creativity there. So. <laughs> and that would have been, I mean, before the internet, more or less, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the research was a lot different back then. I mean, there was no internet. There, you know, yeah, he probably, it's not like the people from one town over could say, oh, like, you know, on Twitter that it's the same speech yeah. or something like that. Oh, gosh, that would have been great. <laughs> or even a, or even a phone. I used to stop at Holiday Inns to call in stories because they had a bank of phones when I was on the road. Wow. So, it was just completely different. That's so interesting. And then what about like the, the CEOs that you would interview or the business people? Were there any interesting characters from the, those um, moments? Think, you know, he most interesting man I'm not was, you know, it's one who owned Worthington Industries. Gosh, I can't think of the name. John McConnell. And he had created this company here. And what was so unusual, he had a great model for a company. And like, everybody got a base pay, of course. But they got a performance bonus each week, depending on whether they showed up, whether their team was there and, and worked together. And if somebody took off sick or something, that would affect your pedit because the output wasn't going to be. At the same time, they had a bottle shop on uh, one premises. And I asked him, I said, what do you have a barbershop? He says, well, hair grows on the job. So we decided to put a barbershop in so they would have to leave to go get a haircut. Mm -hmm. well, but I remember getting a call from Germany and it was a uh, company that wanted his name because they read that story and they liked his business model. Well, they wanted to get a whole change. We had contact information, but he was probably one of the most interesting characters in there. So, I mean, everybody. What did they do? What did they make? Pardon? What did Worthington Industries make? How they make, I don't know what they do, how they change their business model completely. I used to make these tanks. Like for barbecue grills and stuff like that. And Propane tanks. Yeah, it's huge now. Got it. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. So when did you get into art? Have you been into art for a long time? Well, I, I had not been, I think when I was a kid, I used to scribble around and I created a man, a, a character called uh, Lightning Man. And it was, it was like, like a Superman model. I had a big lightning on his chest, but that's the only thing I ever did. I did build around. I thought, so when I got to Houston, no, in Terry. I'm sorry. I'm, I moved from Houston to Phoenix. Then I went to Indiana before. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've been all over the place. I got to Indiana and uh, I thought, gee, you know, telling stories. I think we're all storytellers at heart. And I think that can transform from lighting into art. So I thought, that's what could I do here? So somebody introduced me to a woman in South Bend who taught colored pencil girl. 
Mm-hmm. So in the fall, right? Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to do oil paint because I, I didn't want to be around that. It was you know, too toxic for me at the time. That the solvents mostly that I didn't really want to do. Um, so I went to her house and she had a little class of about four people. And I was there for maybe three or four months, scanning up exactly. But it was really fascinating. And I, and I, I didn't have any experience in anything, even drawing. So I spent some time with her and, uh, I found out that the color pencil medium was, was really different. It takes so much time to do one. And then I worked on pictures that last, that took me in weeks, five, six weeks to, to finish, depending on the detail and that you're always layering and all this. And it was, it was very, uh, very slow medium, but to produce some really brilliant pieces of the art with it. So then when I, quite frankly, about five weeks ago, I figured in the art business, I think speed is a, it's art production is important. So I thought I'd get into acrylics, is it? So I'm now discharging that. The, uh, the, uh, I didn't, I so you were in Indiana when you got into color pencil though at first? Yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. You were in Indiana when you looked into color pencils at first? Yeah, yeah. It was in, uh, she taught, she was in South Bend. So taught out of her home. So that's where I first went to Tribune Yeah. And so, yeah, why at that moment in life did you say, I want to pick up some medium of art? What was going on in your mind question. or life at the time? Yeah, I was, uh, I was still writing and all that. Uh, but had you finished was, your um, novel? Yeah. I'm, I think like I'm working on another novel. I'd, in the meantime, I had written three or four, I did a three, one of my books, four nonfiction books about stories of characters and events in the West. So I got those finished. I think you hit the micro, the mute button. Accidentally. Did you hit the mute button accidentally by chance? You're on, you're on mute. (laughs) Tom, I can't hear you. You're on mute. There you go. Better. Okay. Um, I've always had an interest in art and, uh, but I've never really followed it. And I thought, well, I've got some time now. And, uh, when, and I was looking around for whatever that mud of oil painting and, um, sketching and that kind of thing. But then I ran across this woman who taught colored pencil. I thought that might be interesting. So what about art interests you through your life? I think from a standpoint of, uh, especially when I was out in the Southwest, I used to do take a lot of photographs of course and i used to think gosh would this be a great a great environment to draw or paint or whatever um and i thought but i really didn't have any skills to me but i think everybody does have some skill you just have to do it every day you know at practice it so absolutely and, but and that's what got me was the uh you know, i was mostly inspired by a landscape it's what really really interesting. So 
That's I cool. Yeah. It's, if you've got a lot of time out in the the great outdoors, you're seeing a lot of natural beauty and that just sort of kind of worked on you in the back of your head. And you said this would be great paintings and great drawings. And yeah. then you finally bit the bullet to, to learn. Exactly. Very cool. Um, so have you stuck with that? Are you doing landscapes predominantly or have you been working on other subject matter as well? Mostly it's been landscape or seascapes, whatever. Um, I, I didn't get, I was, I drew a, um, 46 Ford, which I used to own years ago. And I put it in front of a dining. I was up on a hill and I had done, I did this for a magazine, an online magazine, um, an artist who created, who, what she called or something. Um, so I thought I'd kind of enter the contest, so to speak. So, um, he chose it to, uh, feature it one month. Um, so she, and that was kind of fun too. What, what I did was I had to take pictures and other things I went along and then do about 20 steps of light, how I did that with, and this was all colored pencil. All right. So were you a bit of a car guy? I used to, yeah, I love cars, but used to, um, drive a 46 Ford. Then I had an MGC, which they only made like 300, it's a boy, six cylinder. Then I lived in England for about four years and I had something cold a year and, oh gosh, it was, it was a right-hand drive car. And John, I am of the right now, but, and that was fine. Um, so yeah, I've always, I've always loved cars. I've, I love the old cars because of the classic lines of them and tried drawing a, a few. So, and that's been fun, but who made the MGE? MGC. MGC. Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a six cylinder. They didn't make many of those. They, that's like imported about 300 in this country. And I had a neighbor who had one. So was it Mercedes or who, who made the car or was it a separate company that no longer exists? Yeah. MG. Uh, Yeah. I've never heard of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. They made a lot of sports cars. Okay. Okay. Cool. This one. What color was yours? Green. British racing cream. Perfect. Was it a convertible? Yes, it was. I used to have a little, I used to have a Siamese kitten and I would put it right on the gearbox here and it would uh, travel with me as I went through town and it would stop at a light and would look around and never jumped off the thing. And so that was fun. That, 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 it was a fun car to drive. It was convertible bar and so, except in the summertime around here. Do you have any fun cars today? No, 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 not got a boring, uh, U.S. car, just <laughs> Just a boring weight car. Gets you to point A to point B. Yeah, that's all I need. Yeah. And to carry a few things too. An SUV. <laughs> Good. It gets them. Cool. Now I, I can't help but notice in the background you've got like an Italian flag behind you. Is that it? Is that right? Yes, it is. Italian flag and the whole shirt. When I wrote that uh, novel, a friend of mine in uh, Houston gave me a uh, replica six shooter and that whole shirt. And that hat, you can't see the hat too well. It's hanging up there too. And got a little bit of everything in here. And the Italian flag, that's my heritage. So, Does the uh, the six-shooter actually work? Is it just a 
a replica. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it'll hold bullets, but they won't fire at all. Thank God. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, it's, um, you know, spaghetti Westerns. You heard of those horse? Oh yeah. They're great. You, you've got kind of that dynamic going on where if, if you're Italian by background, you're writing Western American <laughs> novels. Have you ever thought about that? No, not really. That's interesting. It's, you're right though. It, it does go hand in hand. Did you uh, grow up in the U.S. or are you originally from Italy? No, my uh, my grandparents were. They came over here, and uh, uh, so I'm second generation. They actually they came from Sicily. My uh, grandmothers were in Palermo and a place called Monreale, which is Red Wings Coast. So, well, yeah, we, so that, that's an interesting marriage you made there, which is which is true. We got a Western. I'd really never thought about it like that. Gosh, in the book I'm writing now, I'll have to expand on that a little bit. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I aim to maybe, help maybe provide some interesting ideas. What might you do, what might you do with that? Do that again. I'm sorry. What might you expand on with that? Tell me more. Oh well, you know, spaghetti westerns to me is every frame was action, 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 and violence. A lot of violence. Other people were. Uh, in my first novel, there weren't a lot of people killed, not a lot of shooting, but, and this one I'm writing about a, uh, a former outlaw who was sentenced to hang and, uh, he did something at that prison that, uh, he got, he got his life given back to him. And the kind of still indulged in there and he, he becomes a sheriff. So, so he's. He's redeemed. He's or making amends for his outlaw days. Well, yeah. He at first the amends were making money the other way, you know. In in the real world, in uh, the old west, why a lot of lawmen uh, walk both sides of the uh, fence. Yep. Right. The outlaws by night, lawmen by day. Because <laughs> didn't really pay a lot. <laughs> Do you know about the Pinkertons? Do they feature in any of your books? Pinkertons, there are a few, I've written a few articles that uh, had Pinkerton. Yeah, that was a uh, interesting organization. They were all over the place. A lot of strike breakers there. Those Do you know they still exist? Pardon? Do you know they still exist? Yeah, I guess they do. I, I, I don't hear too much of them anymore. I don't know if they've still got that same logo with the eye. Probably do. I don't know what I don't they know do. either, but I was listening to a podcast a day or two ago on business and they were talking about the Pinkertons and how they got started. Uh, he like found these outlaws out in the woods and went to the police and said, Hey, I can help you. And he basically like helped them solve this crime and, you know, capture these bad guys. And then it went from there. And I mean, the company's been around for years and years and they still supposedly still corporations will hire them to kind of, um, you know, snoop on their employees or see if people are trying to unionize or whatever it might be. And I had no idea that that still happened, but, um, yeah, I didn't either. I didn't know that actually they, they were also the first, the first woman detective, uh, hired by them. She applied for a job as a secretary, I believe Chicago. And then it was eventually got moved to the detective part of it. I guess she was very good. 
very effective and, uh, and became very close to Mr. Pinkerton. <laughs> okay. And, uh, I think that they were supposed to protect Abraham Lincoln. They did. He got assassinated. Did you know that? No, that was really before there was an assassination, uh, plan, a plot that he uh -huh. was traveling train and they were on that uh, train and the vetted. And they stopped that one? They stopped that one. in the theater, they didn't say, well. Do you think that they were, yeah, still helping out when the theater happened? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, they were, the, the people who were talking about the Pinkertons, like they put Abraham Lincoln on their website today as like a testament of their, their work. So maybe yeah, they, really? maybe they just, uh, are highlighting that first, you know, um, stopping of an assassination attempt. Yeah. Their first, their first success. Their first yeah. success. And this was like all, there wasn't really a secret service for the presidency before then. But then I think because of Lincoln's assassination, they started having more government protection yeah. and they went away from the Pinkertons after that. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Um, go ahead. Now, like I said, one of the things they did was raid uh, Jesse James' home in Missouri, and they ended up. Who was Jesse James? Jesse James. Big Who was that? He was a Missouri outlaw, very famous. Robbed a lot of uh, banks, his gang, a lot of banks and Rari. trains, everything really. So. And he roamed the West and he was kind of a folk hero to the people in Missouri, mm -hmm. even though he was a killer and, and the robber, they liked him. Hometown guy. And so what, what were you, you mentioned the, the Pinkertons with, with him, they found him or. No, they raided his home and, uh, he wasn't there, but they ended up shooting uh, a lot of bullets and uh, ended up. Injuring his mother and I think killing all the boy. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it was just have a strange rain. Um, they did had Jesse James wrong. ever get caught? Yes, he actually got killed. He didn't get caught. He was uh, one of his golden gang members. He was, Jesse James was hanging a picture in the living room and his uh, trusted gang member was behind him and shot him and head killed him and the reason he shot him was made a deal with the governor that if he would uh tell jesse's gang he would get a reward and he and his brother got some five thousand bucks something like that it wasn't hold on money that probably the title was um so that was the end of jesse james when he got uh guy's name was the coward, Mr. Howard, how the coward who, or how shot Mr. Coward or something like that. Anyway, ironically, <laughs> he moves out to the West and he opens a tent saloon in Colorado, Creed, Colorado, opens a tent saloon and uh, somebody came in one morning and ended up having shot young and shot him in the back of the head. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was, there's a lot of, I guess, vigilantism in that time, you know? It was. People weren't satisfied with the way 
will all work and they take along their own hands out of vigilante and updates erupting. Hanged a lot of people on Montana. There was a, a vigilante vertical. And they never got it all right. Some of these people were innocent. They didn't know they narrowly bang about 30 people that I think on stomach. Are there any hangings in your books? No hang. Oh, yeah, this one. I don't know. And I might add a hanging. There wasn't in a person. Could be good. <laughs> that could be an interesting <laughs> dynamic. Like, you know, you always, there's always that. That's a common trope, I feel like, in movies. There's a hanging and then they come and rescue them right before the, the hanging. Yeah, right and they get saved. dropped. Yeah. The yeah. last minute. Or shoot the rope. Yeah. Shoot the rope. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Something There's mighty been... impossible. You think that's impossible? I do. I mean, there were some pretty sharp shooters back then, but that's 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 quite a small target. <laughs> have you ever shot a pistol or a revolver or something like that yourself? I have. I have shot a revolver, and that's um, some of them have some pretty big kicks to it. But... Yeah. I, so I've done some shooting myself. I've done pistols, shotguns, rifles, and uh, pistols are so hard to be accurate with, like just way shockingly difficult. Um, I don't th think people realize, you know, so I would, I might agree with you <laughs> in the movies, they can hit like a, you know, a nickel or something like that. Uh, oh, yeah. eye, and that's so hard to do. Well, I was, I just read a, or I just read, I just wrote a blog about two or three weeks ago about a guy by the name of Bert Alvord, A-L-V-O-R-D. And it, it, I, I found an incident that he was, he would take a, uh, a whiskey bottle or something, tie it to a rope, and then swing this rope, and then he would shoot the rope down the beer bottle. Oh, wow. So, it was quite a sharpshooter. I guess we did pull it off, according to reports at that time. Who knows? There's so many stories. I think stories it's humanly that, possible. I think it's humanly possible. It just requires a lot of practice and a lot of. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, time, time doing it. It's not something you can just pick up and, you know, first time you're shooting a pistol, hit something like that. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. It was in like, and Bill Hickok was another sharpshooter. He was, uh, he used to practice all the time. So, wild Bill. But yeah, and I, I, I went to a pistol range a couple of times. I remember the first time I ever went, there was a guy in the next booth who had, his target was a human. Yep. A silhouette. He's yeah. silhouette. He had a rifle out here. He had the yellow glasses with the seat ladder. And, um, but I thought, you know, he could turn around and shoot me. I mean, there's nothing to prevent. He goes wild or something. I don't know who I was standing next to. It's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, people who haven't grown up around guns or been around guns. Yeah. Like I, I kind of go there, but. If you go to a range like that and they're vetting people well and they have that equipment, they're probably like the safest people to be around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think they want the Charlie Manson in there. <laughs> no. And like, yeah, if he has all that kit and equipment, they're going to be very, very serious. They're probably more worried about somebody who, who's new and like afraid of guns, you know, and things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. Who don't have like dis the discipline around where they're pointing in and treating it like it's always loaded and all that stuff. Um, yeah. Um, 
I, I've done more shotgun shooting in my day, and I find that's more enjoyable because you can be, you don't have to be as accurate and you can do it outside. A lot of times, like they have these orange discs you can hit. Yeah. They're clay, oh, they're yeah. called clay pigeons. Right. Have you ever done that? No, I haven't. That, that kind of fascinates me. Have you done that? Yeah, a fair bit. Um, my, so I live in Atlanta, but my dad is from South Georgia. And okay. so if you're from a rural part of Georgia, the South, like shooting or hunting is like a big thing. It's a big pastime. And so, yeah, we grew up doing a lot of that, um, growing up. Um, and there's some, it's called skeet shooting and there's some skeet shooting ranges here in Atlanta, but I haven't been in a couple of years, but it's always, it's always fun. And they have different stations. So you start at one station and it kind of changes the angle of the clay disc that you have to shoot mm -hmm. at. And you move around the stations in a semicircle. And there are, I think 30, there are 15 stations and you, sh there's two, um, clay pigeons at each station. So you have basically 30 shots that you get a chance to make. And so they score shots. you, they score you out of 30. So you might get, you know, 17 out of 30 or 15 out of 30, and you can go with a couple of friends and, you know, it's a game. You can make a game out of it, which is fun. Yeah. <laughs> do, the, do those things catapult out of there fast? Is it very fast? Is it? Uh, well, it depends on the angle. All right. So there's a high house and a low house. So you start on the side with the high house and which means it's, um, maybe, I don't know, five feet higher than your head, maybe seven okay. feet. Oh. And when they throw it out, the initial velocity is very fast, but it slows down quite a bit and it becomes almost like a Frisbee, you know, but if you let it go too far away, it gets really hard to hit. So there's kind of this sweet spot of where it's not moving too fast, but it's still close enough to be able to hit well. And so those, those first angles when you're coming from the high house are not too bad. But then when you get on the other side of the semicircle and you're standing next to the low house, they're coming out so fast. <laughs> and you, if you don't get it quick enough, it, um, it just really gets away from you. And so you would think it would all be like the same velocity and kind of feel the same, but they, 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 they are, there's a lot of variety of how quickly it feels. And then there's, um, you go in the middle of the semicircle at the very end and the ones coming out of the low house come like right past you. You're kind of facing the low house and yeah. those are the hardest. Cause you have maybe like a split second to hit it before it's past you. <laughs> that sounds kind of fun. It's really fun. But like the first time you try, you, you will probably feel a little foolish cause it just comes so fast on those last those last stations um but once you once you get the muscle memory and the twitch response uh if you do hit it it turns into like basically dust you know you, you just hit it really? so well <laughs> yeah. it picture it just dissipates <laughs> so i wonder if like i wonder when that was brought over to the u.s because that would be interesting if that's how they practice shooting even in the 1800s, I don't even know, you know, that'd be something interesting for you to research. When did skeet shooting become a thing? Yeah. Um, the, 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 that didn't originate here. Then. I mean, I would, my hunch is it would came, would come from the UK, but I could be wrong. Sure. And before they had machines that throw these clay discs that you would just have, um, almost like a slingshot type device and you could just hand throw it. So yeah. pre, you know, pre that, like I could see it being something that happened in the 1800s, but I've never seen it in any sort of western fiction so that'd be an interesting thing to 
Yeah, I, into, yeah, I haven't. Or if there's some early precursor to it, you know, or a precursor sport or something like that. Yeah. I guess people just would go out and they would just shoot live game. They probably, there were so much <laughs> live, well, <that's> live targets. <laughs> yep. Live game, live people. <laughs> yep. Yep. Do you follow much, um, uh, kind of Western modern fiction or media or things like that. Have you heard of Westworld? Do you know that show? Which I'm sorry to hear you. Have you heard of the show Westworld? Oh yeah. 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 Did you watch any of yeah, that? The modern fiction, yeah. Those are good. Those are good stories. I do like. I'm a huge Michael Crichton fan. I love his books. Yeah. And he was the guy who wrote the screenplay for that. If you, I don't know if you knew right. that. Yeah, I do. I do. I did. I yeah, saw it. Yeah. I think that's such show. a fa fascinating, like the first couple of seasons were so good. Um, and they did a good job of kind of, I think, capturing at least like the aesthetics of the West, um, in yeah. a very interesting way. Yeah. That was a good movie. Michael Crichton used to be great, great writing, good books. He, he supposedly would write 10,000 words a day while he was in med school. <laughs> well, I thought two or three thousand was fine, but ten thousand a day. Who knows if that's true or not? What's that? I says you do that kind of output, you could have that book done in a week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder how much of he he would keep, or you know, how much would would get discarded. Um, what do you think about? There's that saying in writing about killing your darlings. Have you ever heard of that saying? Yeah, I. What's your take on that? I think I, but I don't know. Telling your darlings when you're writing. Is that we do a lot of editing. Do you do you kind of cut yeah. a lot of your work aggressively? In I the just want to say, I was just going to say on my first book, I had sent it to an editor, a professional editor. This book was eighty thousand words long originally. Uh huh. So she came back with a few suggestions and all this jazz, and I sat down and read it, and I thought this is too long. I ended up myself cutting 10,000 words out of it, but I ended up being 70,000 words writing at 80,000, but editing is where it's at. I mean, a lot of writers that I know, um, and I'm not like this, but they can churn that stuff out like uh, 10,000 words a day. They'd go a lot of writing fast, get the story out there. Then the editing is really where they're, well, everything comes together. Then it's so tough and it's tough to edit yourself because you really don't see mistakes. You're too close to the story. Um, that's why external editors, most of us shouldn't be there, but I use two editors and there's still some mistakes and some of these bits didn't, didn't, didn't catch. So you can have an editor for, you know, spelling and grammar and all that. Then you can have editors that uh, talk about the content of the story, whether it makes any sense. Those are really valuable. Right. Or if you introduce like a character and it's like, oh, you haven't really introduced this person yet, like, or continuity errors or things like that, they'll help you right. with that sort of stuff. That's what used to drive me crazy in some books that I've read novels and never know what happened to a particular character. They should all be accounted for somehow. And like, and like, oh, at the end, somebody. like they don't wrap them up. They just kind of like fade away. Right. Like and half unresolved. They, yeah. It's, I don't know, I used to read a lot of John Grisham novels and, uh, he never used to wrap up a lot of characters, drove him crazy. 
I wanted to find out what happened to him. But but then they, they can't knock his success. So Jay is it really doesn't matter when it comes to him. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, I, I found in my own creative output, there's this temptation to just try to be like, do it exactly right on the first draft. And it just takes things so much longer. And yeah, if you can oh. just get the first draft down and then edit, like editing, it's that staring at that blank page, blank piece of paper, metaphorically, whatever it might be, whether it's writing or something else. Um, that's, that's the hardest part. Um, do you have any like tricks or tips on how to not be paralyzed and just kind of get the juices going and get action, action out on, the, on paper? Yeah, I mean, I think you got to set a goal for yourself every day if you like it like that um and and planning and organization in my opinion is really let me put it this way some of the formula stuff especially in the west some of the formula values they are formula stories they're pretty much the same they plug in different characters and you can write this stuff pretty fast but and the stuff i try to do historical adventure kind of stuff uh-huh. Requires a little more planning, a little more time. I remember where I, and I had no experience at all in doing fiction. Uh, but I sat down and I tried to create a cast of characters. And I actually took together a three or four chapter headings and maybe one or two. Sort of an outline? Yeah, sort of a map. And um, what I learned along the way, and I believe I might have read it, that if you write the ending first, or pretty close to there, you know where you're going then, which I thought was interesting. So I did that about halfway through the book, not at the beginning. But yeah, if you know the ending, then you kind of work backwards. And that seems to everybody I've interviewed, I don't know how many writers over the past few years, uh, 30, 40, 50, and most of them have just their own unique way of doing it. There's no textbook style, for the most part. Some of the people I've read, or I've ripped out of interviews, 600 books, 300 books, novels, incredible output, though. And whether they want to buy it or not, they they bought out a plan of some kind, and they couldn't produce it there by not having, you know, plan or a form What matters me. I've heard an interesting idea of, um, you know, you mentioned having a goal and is the goal, the goal would be to like get into a routine or a rhythm or write a certain number of words a day, but you're not necessarily saying more beyond that. Is that kind of what type of goal you mean? Yeah. I, what I used to do was not so much a word goal. I used to try to get a chapter goal. I shot for three or four chapters. Uh, in the beginning, uh, but per the way I, per, not per day, you wouldn't write three chapters a day, would you, or could yeah. you do that? Oh, wow. Yeah, I would, I'd, uh, my chapters are short they're not, they don't go on a long time. So that's my formula. I like to keep them short. Um, but you, you kind of get into the zone and if you do, then you want to keep going because you really putting this stuff out, then you run across, eventually you hit the you know, show wall, but you kind of have to sit back and go around and see, it's a lot of problem solved fiction. Uh, and I've done that with this book. I've written myself into the corner a couple of times, 
I think that's so important. It's like, yes, it's not a word goal, but a chapter goal. It's just, you want to get in this rhythm, almost have like a system where every day you're moving the project forward. And if you can just even write a little bit, you kind of prime the pump and then you might output more than you realize you could or anticipated. Is that fair? Yeah. You, yes. You do have to write a lot and keep going. I, I, I have a program called uh, Grammarly and it'll pop up and if there's an, an error or maybe misspelling or maybe it could be worded differently. But I get a report every month, eh? and part of that is uh, where you rank with other writers and uh, and your output, not your output necessarily, but the number of corrections or mistakes or whatever. But they've also got a, a word count. And uh, I think I joined this you know, about four or five years ago, maybe five years ago. And my word count was just stuff like that. It's, it's just on the blogs and stuff like that. It's like, around 4.9 million words in the past, I four, five, six years. Uh, nice. And I thought that was interesting because it's just, there was mostly the blog is where I use that stuff. So, okay. But then, but then when you hit it, yeah, I think I used to equate this the other day. We're talking about the writing and art and, and the similarities. And I think in art I found, at least for me, you got to have a reference point, so to speak, of where you're going to go with this and a plan. Uh, particularly, I know in color pencil is not real forgiving. You can't erase them lot, for example. This doesn't work. So you really have to have a plan on what you want to do with this stuff. And I found that the most difficult part because when I first got into it, all I wanted to do was you know, get something on paper and you know, draw it. And, see what happens with, and I guess that's a fun part, but at the same time, if you want to produce something worth a selling, for example, you just have to, I, can I have you, to have can you do layers to it? Maybe write in pencil and erase that and kind of do an outline and then do color pencil on top. How does that work? Yeah. When I, when I do the initial drawing, it's a, uh, I use number six pencil. Um, it's very light. I just kind of draw that in, uh, where it can be erased as you go along. Sometimes you can go over, but if it's, if it's too, make too much of an invitation, it won't take it, it won't work. So yeah, you draw that first and then first you got to select the colors you want, the idea of the colors. And uh, now I just keep, you know, a couple pieces of paper over here to kind of test it out. And cause you're, on, you're layering all those layering, layering and blending. So you have to see what kind of, if you know what you want to achieve, and that's why I use a reference picture sometimes, whether I make it myself or I try to make my own photographs for reference, um, rather than be somebody else's. I remember when I first started this, I did a graphite drawing of a ship, you know, in Baltimore Harbor, and it had a, a tugboat beside it. And, and most of it was a lot of water. It's really ice. Wasn't out at night. There's all the portion graphic black and white. So I remember I posted it on Facebook one day, and about a week later, guy gets on and says he'd like to buy that. And I said I'd love to sell it to you, but I really couldn't because I just copied it from somebody who had done that. That's when I was first starting. 
they are copying a lot of that, what other people do. So that kind of discouraged me. And had a sale. <laughs> did you think of offering to do a, an original commission that was similar for that guy? You know, at the time, I, it wasn't even in my head. No. And that would have been a great entree. Perfect. <laughs> what harbor would you like? <laughs> you could have done the same harbor, but say, hey, I've got to, I've got to change some of these elements, yeah. but we can definitely do something similar. Um, well, they say you can change some elements in there and you know, make it your own, but you got to be careful. Well, there, yeah. No, that's why we're working together. I can help you with some of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's why I'm here. Uh, so what other ways have your career as a writer, as a journalist, uh, influenced your approach to your art practice? Well, I think it all comes down. I think I mentioned the earlier that both those mediums of disciplines, if you will, they're all based on stories, storytelling. And in writing, you're telling a story. But I think in artwork, you are telling a story. You're setting a mood. You know, you're trying to achieve some kind of reaction, some uh, passionate reaction, hopefully. Uh, but it all comes down to what kind of story you're telling in that. And that is not easy to do. I don't think. Um, you know, and try, I try to create a storyline when I do that. Is this going to evoke a memory or? Or something inside, but I think that's where they're some you're, you're telling stories, whatever you're writing or drawing or painting, whatever. That makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, can I share a thought or two that kind of are coming up from what you just shared? Sure. I think um, you know more and more the artists that have success. It's because they have an interesting story themselves. Uh, people fall in love with the story of the artist, the why behind the work. And then that, of course, flows into the individual stories of each piece. But um, I think you're uniquely suited. You're in a unique positive spot because you have that background in storytelling. If you can get comfortable with turning that scale on yourself and like talking up your own story and, and crafting that narrative, and putting that out there, that's going to help you immensely um, with mm -hmm. uh, growing an audience for your work. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's important to have a good story behind each piece for sure. Don't get me wrong, but it's like uh, people need help uh, interpreting the work or understanding it. If you just put the story in the piece, but don't help them understand it through your own writing alongside of it, or, you know, having somebody else like a historically you'd have, you know, a gallery owner or a curator or somebody else write a lot about an artist. Uh, it'll, it'll reduce the reach. Does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, that's funny because I've been reading a few, um, background, I don't know if they call artist statements or what, but bios of artists when, when I see their artwork and, uh, somebody like, I don't have, you know, an academic background in art, and I'll, most of those people do, by the school, a number of, so to supplant that in something, like you just said, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And you don't need an artist statement uh, when you're starting out or anything like that. I mean, you have to think about who the audience is for that. The audience for that is like 
classical art schools, classical art galleries. Um, and it's a, it's a small audience, but that audience, what they're looking for, um, is going to be different than like the average person on social media. So okay, you can absolutely write for that sort of audience if you want to, but you don't want to like take that artist statement and translate it into your social media one for one, because it'll, it just won't hit the same way. Yeah. Um, I think you want to be accessible, approachable, uh, likable, and I think you've got a, a really interesting story and you can probably weave in a lot of the stuff we've been talking about here into your own content and draw people in through that. All right. Um, maybe even talk about, you know, help if you create content, helping people understand the story and art or like how to interpret visual images, um, you could use examples of your own art, but you could also talk about maybe other Western art as well. That could be a very interesting theme to dwell on, to draw people in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I was thinking of a, in terms of collections, for example, um, within let's, let's take landscape art as an example. I mean, within that umbrella, you can create a lot of uh, collections that are American West, I mean, whatever. I mean, right. Like, so, like Jesse James or something like that, or, uh, that yeah. outlaw in Columbus that they stole the stuff from the train. Like you can milk that just like you milk that into an, an, a novel you can milk that into uh artwork and in fact like this could be interesting is like have you illustrated any of your novels no and i've thought about that that's because i'm never happy with a cover i'm not happy with the ones i have now except one um but i thought that was that's in fact that's a great business opportunity because <laughs> they so but i haven't drawn the characters yet i haven't been able to draw people yet so well, my point is like, yeah, you've got, you've got thousands and thousands of words already written down in your own hand about these interesting stories. So you have this fertile ground where you could just make paintings, drawings, you name it. And then you don't even have to do as much of the hard work of wrapping them in stories. You just already have the stories written. So that, and I'm not, so you don't necessarily need to go and actually change the cover of your books, but you could just use that as a, a launch pad for different series of art. That could be a great, great idea for you. That is a good idea. In fact, I'll tell you what I do now when I, when I do finish something and, and I might tend to post it on Facebook and Twitter sometimes, not so much Twitter, but I always have a story with it. I notice there's a lot of these, whenever they post a story, it's just the, the title of the artwork. I'm not story, but artwork. Oh yeah. Yeah. They just put the title of the artwork, 28 by 30, you know, the yeah, medium, exactly. like, and then maybe a price sometimes. And, and a price, I don't think yeah. that ever, I would, I would, I would be shocked if one out of a thousand posts like that lead to a sale. Yeah. But the reason everyone does it is because they see other artists do it. And so they think that's what you need to do, but they're just kind of copying each other and no one's actually making many sales doing that. My experience and that, you're right and in fact uh i had one of my uh, i'm supposed to deliver a print to a uh a, a couple i know and they were looking at i had uh, met him for lunch and i had a portfolio with me on my ipad and he looked at it and he said oh this is perfect for my wife and i said it was a picture of a a, a cowboy on a horse a silhouette standing in the stream in this mountain range ahead of him a lot of color and said, oh man she would just love that and i said bob let me get that for you so 
but I wrote a story. When I post, I wrote a story, and when I when I deliver it, then I'm going to have a story on a, on a, some kind of I don't know what paper he used, but and it's only about it's about a, actually the inspiration for it was a 45 year old lawman uh, traced a outlaw 2,000 miles on horseback. Wow! And brought it back on horseback. So, and he, you know, had to navigate all these mountain ranges and all that. It was, and that, that was kind of the inspiration for that. So I'd heard a little story. I'd written a blog about it, actually. And it was fun. So I tried to keep it short and sweet, maybe about five or six sentences as a description of artwork. And that, that was, that kind of field deal, so to speak. Because their imagination went into play then. I thought that was a, the, what happened. I love that. So. Even that though, is just scratching the surface. Like imagine this, Tom, you could take that one story about the lawman chasing the person over 2000 miles, and you could create a month of content just about that story, right? Asking people questions. Where did they go next? Why do you think he was chasing him? Uh, unveil the story, draw people in. You could interview historians who know about that period or why this happened, blah, blah, blah. You really can milk that. And then once you've milked it and drawn people in around that story, then at the end, maybe unveil a work of art around it. Um, you can. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting. Think about how like today when a movie comes out, right? They don't right. just make a trailer the day the movie comes out. They spend three, four, five months, you know, going, doing publicity, tours, talking about it dropping three, four, five trailers, um, Te teasers. Yeah. And so that's the way you want to think about it. Um, and it's, now it's a big mindset shift. A lot of artists don't think that way, but that would make a huge difference. That is a fascinating approach. I've never thought about that. that it can and the great thing is you've got, so, you've got so much writing, you've got the blogs and the books that you can really take that and use that as a as a, as a way to create those different content ideas and draw things yeah. out. Awesome. I like that. Makes you're, sense. You have to be structured in such a way that, yeah, you know, what are you talking about? What's this guy talking about? When's the next, when's the next information page coming? You know, would you include any artwork with that at all? And it says a teaser. You could, like, no, you could. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, um, uh, let's see. If you are just starting out and you have, you don't have much of an audience, you want most of your content, 80% of your content to be about the topic that you're working on and, or yourself personally, um, okay. and your audience. So more about that. And then maybe 20% that's art related. Um, okay. yeah. So I would say one out of five posts could be a teaser. Maybe you show a little bit of art of what you're working on, or maybe you talk about, I don't know, different colors that you're trying to decide between. You ask them for input on that. Um, you can incorporate that. But um, if you just talk about the crafts and the technical elements of making the work, I think you end up attracting a predominantly just other artists that want to kind of learn the mechanics yeah. of art. Okay. But if, but it sounds like every one of these times where you've had people express interest is because 
you know, that boat in the Baltimore Harbor, they probably had some sort of connection to Baltimore that reminded them of something in their own life. Um, what, do you know more about that? No, if I, that's what, if I would have been, if that would have happened now, it would have right. been a different, a different conversation. Back then, I just said, oh gosh, I didn't think about doing something for special custom. Yeah. But it's oh, always basically, they connect with the subject matter up in some way. And um, the art is important. Like it has to be good art. It has to be aesthetically pleasing. But, um, right. you know, they're not, they're not uh, looking at it with the same eyes that it, the, the creator of the art does, you know? So that's the challenge is like being able to have, inhabit that different mindset when it comes to writing about what you're doing. So um, that's what I would, yeah, I would really think about that. You probably got just tons of stuff that could be turned into good content. Um, have you heard of these um, AI chat tools like ChatGPT yet? Yes. Have you played around with I that do. at all? Yeah, I, I do. I, I use that occasionally. Um, so that would be a really good way to... Uh, like, uh, take like, you know, you could take a blog that you've written and you can paste it in and say, give me 10 ideas for Instagram posts based on this. In fact, I did that the other day. I use it to, uh, kind of refine what I'm doing, what I'm writing. I'm trying to find another avenue. And I, I and I really never did much of that. So I do have one of the um, applications. So I tried it and I said, uh, you know, what's a better way of saying this, this and that and Man, I, I, was, I thought I, I sat back in my chair and it was done. I mean, it's just like this, go quick. And there were good, some of that stuff. I mean, you, you refine that, but in itself, it was very good and things I'd never thought about and can apply those in your own way. So that was, I think that's really valuable because what you're doing turns in, you're saving a lot of time and getting a lot of, of input. And ideas and that you can make your own when you're writing. Exactly. Like right. you have to, what I found in my experience is you have to be expert enough in the domain you're asking for help in to prompt it the right way to get good output. And then you have to be expert enough to be able to read the output, to judge what to keep and what to discard. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a, it's just a tool that speeds up like exploring creative avenues, like you said, but then you still have to be the one who decides which one to explore further and how to refine it and kind of make it your own. Uh, just like you said. What I found out in playing with that thing, I thought, uh, I came to the conclusion that the more specific you can be and the better and not, not so, not so long, so to speak, kind of brief, but brief and specific. And I had a lot of luck with that. that it, it came down with better with buys at the end. So nice. that, those are working with something. They're just great. And just for kicks, I was, uh, <clears throat> one of my characters in my book I'm working on now and said, I wanted a background on it. And uh -huh. I had a few ideas, but I it and it came back with some great ideas, which I thought, well, I'll use those. That's applied to my own, but the things I didn't think of. So it's a valuable, if you do it right, and if you're specific. And it's like great. having a little assistant or a writer's assistant who can help you. It out. is. Yeah, it is, and, you know, because a lot of the stuff you want to bounce off somebody sometimes doesn't make any sense, and you don't have that. Writing's a lonely game. <laughs> well, yeah, I would encourage you if you haven't thought about it yet. Like, definitely 
try to use that some when it comes to, you know, creating content around your artwork these days okay. and thinking about that. That's going to be really helpful. Um, yeah, and I, I have to use it. Scratch. I'll try that. Yeah, because I haven't used it for that. So that, that's the idea. Yeah, I like that idea. Kind of a dripping thing. Four or five posts. And I'll try to structure that. That's interesting. And yeah, I got yeah. my roots. So, because I do have, be, I get. It doesn't have to be exactly a month. I just use a month as an example. But um, yeah, like the, 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 the first step is people just post their art with the title of the art. But then the next step is like posting your art with just a couple of sentences. And even that, still, you just need to keep going and like create more narrative, more story about you and the topic that you're interested in. And then pepper, pepper the artwork through it like it's seasoning, you know? And that's going to make a big difference. What I found it was kind of interesting on Facebook. I've been on there a long time since I've been writing. And uh, I'll post my blogs on there and they don't get a lot of them. I mean, it's a specialized audience, obviously, but um, I get a few replies, not many. I post a piece of art and I'll get 70, 80, 90, 100 comments. It's unbelievable. I mean, I'm just shocked. I thought, all this time I'm writing, all this experience, I had nothing. You know, I post a piece yeah. of art, boom. So... Of course, writing is hard to people. Yeah. People have a hard time reading, right? Yeah. People don't want to read. No, they don't want to read. (laughs) But that's not everybody. I mean, like, of course, there's audiences for reading today. It's just that um, social media, what Facebook does is it's looking for what's getting engagement. And so if it starts to get engagement, then it shows it to more people and then gets more engagement. And so that's why, yeah, like typically photos and videos do better. Videos do the best. These they days. do. They are. Yeah. They yeah. do. Not bothered. Man, things have changed so much. Everybody's and and social media has turned everybody into a writer. Good or bad. Everybody now has the ability to put their thoughts out there, and yeah, it's unfortunate. Have them be judged or <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, terrible. It's very interesting. It's. You think it's terrible? In some, I I find that there's no filter. Of course, in social media and some of the comments are just incredible. I mean, some of them sound so deranged to me. I mean, there's some real trash out there. That's the only thing I don't like about it. There's just nobody has a filter. You have to, um, yeah, like I think the key thing is to uh, find tools that can help you curate your own experience. There's ways you can basically prevent yourself from coming across that sort of content. And then um, you inevitably you still are. So like just building up resiliency and not being able to take it personally. And when you say these comments, is it typically stuff on your own content that like is not very nice? People saying ni- nice things or you mean more like just other content, like people talking about politics or controversial things? Yeah, online. that's what I'm talking about. More of that. The political aspect. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I find... Yeah. Whenever, if I am following somebody, like the one social media that I actually read pretty regularly right now is Twitter. And so as soon as somebody posts some sort of political thing, even if I agree with it, but if it's like uh, polemical or like emotionally charged, I often will just unfollow them because I just want to get all that out of my my psyche. And you just have to be very disciplined about that. And it's, it's hard to do that. <laughs> yeah, it is more reply. <laughs> 
Yeah. Or just, it just stirs you up and it distracts you, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I tell you, I, I have kind of gotten away from reading a lot of that stuff because it just triggers. Now I'm just, uh, I'm so critical of the news media today anyway. So that really triggers everything. Man. Yeah. And I don't think Facebook has this tool, but I know Twitter and Instagram do where you can put like words that you want to block. So if there's certain words that people are talking about and you just don't want to hear about it. So that would be nice if Facebook yeah. had that, but for some reason they don't, I don't think. Oh, okay. No, I didn't, I didn't occur to that. Yeah. Huh. No. Um, better than yeah, you. I think, I think the democratization of being able to write and access an audience is much more messy than things were historically, probably when you were a journalist and writing. Oh, but yeah. I'm optimistic that we're in like a growing pains period that we're just going to have to like evolve and educate ourselves and relate to this, these sort of tools in more healthy ways over time. And that on the whole, it'll be more positive. But right now it's definitely like in a very tumultuous kind of messy. Like um, a wild time. west. Yeah. It's, it's, it is, it's a wild west, <laughs> digital wild west. <laughs> and they're arming themselves too. <laughs> no. And there, there, there's, there's arming, there's, there's Pinkertons, there are <laughs> outlaws, everybody's there. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That could be, that could be interesting. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Trying to combine that the modern era with, uh, with outlaws or like having an outlaw time travel to the future or something like that. It's <laughs> like Westworld. <laughs> yeah. Just like that's, you're right. Never mind. They've already done that. <laughs> yeah, we've done that. <laughs> um, well, what else? Is there anything else about your art? Like, have you made me sales recently or had any wins or no, I'm not made excited any, about? I had two people that, uh, and an older couple, uh, liked mm -hmm. the, uh, car in front of the diner because they were, they were, this is the four of that era, like, but a little like old, like me. Um, yeah. But, and I said, I, I, they live in a, and it's just not just looking, but a retirement home. So took it over there and all that and had some nice comments. And so I said, uh. You're going to hang this up. He said, well, we're having my son come over and hang everything up. They had all these pictures lying around. I said, yeah. okay. I said, well, send me a picture when you do that. So I got it the other day. About that big on the wall. <laughs> you can't even see what it is. And this guy says, um, I'm sorry. I'm just horrible at taking these pictures. So I wrote back and I said, well, next time I come to visit you, I said, let me take the picture. Oh, okay. That'd be fine. <laughs> That's a great, actually, that's a great learning. That's a great learning. So the takeaway is, um, sometimes you have this temptation. It's like, oh, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to intrude. I want to make it easier for them. So I'll just have them take the photo because they'll already be there. But then if the photo isn't usable, then. That's terrible. It, 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 and that was an afterthought. I thought I should get a picture on the wall. Because he, he told me, and he says, I got that picture on up. And I said, well, oh, take, then I took, took a picture of it. But yep. I should have said, then I'll come over because. It was so far away and over water and yep. it was on you. And, they, and they're just not, they're not, they're not going to be a professional photographer, a professional marketer. They're not going to care yep. as much as you. So one of the things I try to echo to you and everybody else, everybody who's listening, is like, you just have to have so much 
agency and proactiveness where if you want something to get done, you kind of have to like be the one who leads and gets it done right. And then once you've developed that own ability to do that, you could eventually delegate or communicate or give instructions and have a chance. But uh, yeah, too often, if you just leave it to them to do something, it's not going to be um, that marketing asset that you're looking for. No, uh, not like you are, like you envision it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if they're there and you're there, you can like even be in the photo yourselves, right? Have somebody else take it, yeah. get a couple photos, yeah. add that human element. The human element is so important. Um, That's a good idea, taking it with the client. Uh, I think that, that makes a big impression. Impact. Yes, yes. That's what if, if you haven't looked at it, there's something called the seven day profit workshop, which is in the training. It's a little additional mini course that you should have okay, access to. It? The seven day profit workshop. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've done that. That's got some good insights on like why, when you should collect this sort of social proof and how to, how to do it. And so that could be a good thing to re-reference, um, yeah, for some more insights on that. But, um, what else? Are there any other, you know, wins, big or small that you've had recently that you no, want to celebrate? Those two uh, those two essentially were, uh, and I'm kind of eager to deliver this Fred when he's going to give me a call this week. Cause I, I put together a little package of, uh, the Pret and, uh, I quit, which I'm still waiting for. I, I'm, I'm waiting on a piece of, uh, like a certificate of authenticity. Okay. This is an original print. So I had a little four by six card and on uh -huh. it, I put the story of it the inspiration for it, like I was telling you, I'm going to put that with it and, uh, like that's it. And then deliver it and that happened to the, uh, phone, um, the video. So can I give you some tips on that? Yeah, I had, please. I'm not there yet. So like when you have that certificate of authenticity, that card, you know, take some photos and videos of that. Take some okay. video of you writing on it and signing it. Uh, when you're heading over to deliver it to him, take some photos and videos of you in the process of delivering. It's not that you necessarily need to use all this, but the more of this content you create, then the more kind of fodder you have to use um, yeah. on your social media. And what people are going to be looking for is prospective buyers, they're going to want to see, oh, like Tom is active. People are already buying his work. They're valuing his work. He's selling stuff. He's delivering work to people. That will uh, help people have the confidence that, oh, if they buy your work, they're not going to be making a mistake or being foolish because other people are already buying the work from you. It's kind of like a, a chicken and the egg type of thing. Does that make okay. sense? Yep. I, I like that. Yeah. I can do that. So every time there's something interesting happening in the life cycle of a customer, you know, every milestone, you know, whether it's packaging the art up and shipping it off to the post office or having them unbox it and open it, or, uh, you coming by and dropping it off, whatever it might be, like all those are opportunities for content creation. And you just yeah. need to like map out those steps in your mind and then take some time to brainstorm creative ways you can create content around that. And then if you, do, once you've done that, you know, you don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel. You can do that same content for every single piece and just slightly vary it and riff on that, but you still have that same structure and system to creating that content. 
Well, I've also been taking pictures as I go along. I'm, I'm working on something behind me here. And I'm taking pictures as we go along here. Uh, so I can use that somehow, kind of building yep. that, that drawing or that uh, piece. 100%. But if 80% of your content is more like you're thinking showing about ideas, that, if 80% of your content is showing people where the screen is frozen, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Hey, Tom, are you there? Hey, Tom, are you there? Well, Tom, are you there? Tom, can you hear me? Well, everyone, we might wrap up there. This is a good as good as time as any because I've got another uh, call I need to hop onto in just a few minutes. So, Tom, thanks so much for uh, speaking with me and connecting. Um, let me know. We'll we'll get kind of your details after this about where people can learn more about you online. And uh, thanks so much. And we'll talk soon. All right. Bye.